Thanks so much for being here on Mother's Day. Um, it is great that we get to celebrate uh, Mother's Day together here, and it's great if you're able to celebrate Mother's Day later on. Um, mums are, are great, aren't they? Um, I know not everyone has had the same experience or a positive experience, but um, I hope you've had the experience where you've learned a lot from your mum. Uh, mums say things, they teach us so much. They say things that can stick with you for the rest of your life. Um, I remember my mum, she said something that stuck with me um, for my whole life. She, um, f- to, to understand this, you need to know her name. Her name is Ellen. And she said that when she was young, she used to support Leeds United because they play at Elland Road. And that stuck with me my whole life. I don't think I'll ever forget when she said that to me. And from now on, I don't think I'll ever forget where Leeds United play. On a more profound note, um, she said another thing that stuck with me. She taught me something about children. She used to be a nursery teacher. And um, as all nursery teachers do, she, uh, at the end of the day, she would sometimes have to take a parent aside um, at pick-up time and say, oh, I'm really sorry, little Johnny's done something really naughty. And she said that she really used to hate it when um, the parent would be there and the child would be next to them and the parent would say, oh, you're... You're our naughty one. Your brother and sister, they're good, but, but you've turned out to be our naughty one. He's a little devil, this one. He's always up to something. They might mean it nicely, um, but she would hate that because she said that that was a self-fulfilling prophecy, that that child now saw themselves in that role. They've got a role to be in now. So if ever their brother and sister are doing something good, they know that it's out of character for them to also be good. So they live up to that role they've been given. They step into um, that identity they've been given as the naughty one. You can guarantee that tomorrow or next week, they're going to be doing the same thing again, the same naughty thing. Well, something like that happens with adults. Um, Who we think we are governs what we think our life is about, and it governs the things we do. And as Christians, uh, we believe that the Bible tells us who we are. We're not dependent on hearing what other people are saying. Uh, The Bible tells us, who we are. And if the Bible tells us who we are and we know who we are, that is really going to be the fuel for thinking about the whole of life and thinking about what we do next. And our passage today that we're going to read um, is profoundly about that, it establishes um, a real healthy identity for people who know Jesus. We are looking at the book called Song of Songs, which is a book in the Bible that um, reads like a poem. It's a romantic poem. There's a It's like a duet, a man who sings and a woman who sings. The man is the groom. He's a shepherd king, and he's the husband. And sometimes you hear from the bride, his wife, and she speaks sometimes. So you get the two parts of it, Um, and they often sing about their love. And it's worth mentioning before today's passage is read that we often um, have language that sounds odd to us, metaphors from nature and the countryside. So today, for example, we're going to read that the king likens his bride's bride's waist to a heap of wheat and her nose to be like a tower. And he also uses metaphors to describe graphic intimacy. We're going to come across that today. So just a a little forewarning. Don't let your imagination run too wild. Don't be put off by all the things you're going to hear today. All will become clear when we spend a little bit of time understanding it. So Hikari is going to come up to uh, do the reading for us. Um, If you need a Bible then put your hand in the air and one of the stewards will bring one to you. The passage uh, references on the screen, but I'll invite Hikari up to 
come and read the passage for us. Today's passage is on page 684, and if you have a church Bible, it has this bookmark. Uh, it's page 684 from uh, Song of Song, chapter 7, verse 1. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter! Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hand. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like two fawns of gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabbim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the, on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. She, may the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us, go, let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened. And if the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. If only you were to me like a brother, who was nursed at my mother's breast. Then if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. And despise me? I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house. She who has taught me, I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Well, thanks very much, Akari. Um, if you uh, want to know a little more about Song of Songs, we'd really love for you to spend some time in there yourself, and we'd love for you to read it at your own pace. We've got a book that we're selling, and um, it looks like this. It's called Jesus, Lover of My Soul by a really good writer called Julian Hardiman. Um, he's, he's really clear in his writing. He's really warm. Um, so I really recommend uh, picking up a copy of this. We've got them for sale over to, uh, on the left-hand side, so it'll be, you'll pass it when you go out. Um, they are normally to be sold for £10. They're available for £7. It's a full 
30% reduction. Um, I just did that in my head. So. Um, so you can pick up a copy of this, and that means you can read through Song of Songs yourself um, and see what you make of all the things that you've been hearing in these, uh, these, this sermon series lately, um, and also read uh, what Julian Hardiman is saying. That this, it's a bit like a devotional book, so I think... Um, how many chapters? I think someone said there's like 30 chapters or something like that. So 30 short chapters, which means you could read a chapter a day, perhaps as your quiet time, or uh, work through it slowly. Um, but it means that it's available to you in bite-sized chunks. So please do pick up a copy of the, this. Um, we've ordered however, however many we think people will buy. Um, but if we run out, we'd love to get you some more. So just go ahead, buy it today, take it home, and start reading it. Um, do keep the passage open in front of you. Um, if you would prefer to follow on in a Farsi, what I'm going to say is available in Farsi and available in French. Um, on the table over to the side, um, there's a copy, a paper copy of both of those. If you prefer to follow along in English, there's a digital copy and the, um, the address is on the screen behind me to find that. Um, keep the Bible open. We're going to make reference to it a bit. Uh, but before we do that, let me pray. Father God, we pray that uh, in the words of the, the book of Song of Songs this morning, we would really see Jesus as the lover of our soul. We pray that by your Holy Spirit's working in us, that would have a profound effect on us. And uh, you'd make us into the people who you delight in. You'd help us to respond in joy. We pray that you'd be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we better start off with that elephant in the room then, with what is going on on those strange descriptions. It begins even in verse 1. Why, oh why, does a king think it's a romantic thing to say to his bride that her nose is like a tower or her navel is a rounded goblet? A word for the guys. Um, if you plan to tell your wife or girlfriend that her waist looks like a mound of wheat let me know how that goes <laughs> i'd love to find out um i'll i'll be waiting with an ice pack um what is going on in all these weird descriptions and actually what's what's this got to do with us well as it turns out we're going to find that the king's description of his bride he's talking about his bride in verses one to five um, and this description is profoundly affirming and upbuilding for the woman who hears it. Because he is constantly using metaphors that bring to mind God's beautiful promised land. And he wants her to begin to think of herself in those terms. He wants this passage to form her view of herself into one that is dignified, honored, and fruitful. When he speaks, he speaks of her dignity. <coughs> Excuse me. When I was um, when I was young, um, I used to play the violin. I used to play the violin a bit, but um, I used to learn to play the violin. And uh, when you start playing the violin, it never sounds very nice. In fact, there's a metaphor that people often use for people who uh, are just learning to play the violin. They say it sounds like you're strangling a cat. Um, so everybody who's ever played the violin has always begun with a view of themselves that they're not very good. Everyone who's ever started to learn how to play the violin has gone through a period where they think, this sounds horrible to people's ears. No one wants to listen to me. 
it sounds like I'm strangling a cat. Well, when I played the violin, it was a lot like that, um, but I stuck at it. I played it for a number of years. I practiced at home, and I used to play the violin to the, along to the hymns in church. And, um, and this was quite a few years after I'd started. So I used to play regularly at our church. And one day there was a guy in the congregation. He was really, he really encouraging, really lovely, warm guy. And he came up to me and said, oh, thanks so much for playing. When you play the violin, I can hear the, the starlings chirping in the forest or a stream trickling down a mountain. Well, what do you make of that? Well, first thing, obviously, I'm not to take that literally. Um, and he is describing it in terms of something that he thinks is really lovely. To him, it conjures up this image of whatever it is, relaxation, beauty, whatever he thinks. But it's meant to be a compliment. But you know what? For someone who's ever been, only ever been told that it sounds like you're strangling a cat, that not only is a compliment, but it does something for me. It changes how I view myself as a violinist. It makes me think, you are an accomplished violinist. From now on, you can think of yourself as someone who people would like to listen to, not would rather not listen to. That is a truth that from then on, I can step into. I can live out that truth. I can pursue music with joy and confidence. And it's the same with the king's song to his bride in this passage. Whatever she thought of herself before this, she can think differently now. If she had embarrassment about her appearance before this, or a shadow over her past, which we know actually from chapter one, she does. Or if she comes to him feeling ashamed at what she's done, which we know from chapter five, that's probably also likely going on. What he says to her is to say to her, you, you shouldn't think like that about yourself. This is how you should think about yourself. And he, he just is overflowing with all these phrases that would be familiar to the Old Testament people that describe the land of Israel when God has fulfilled his promises to them. See, that all the people of those days would have known that God promised his people richness and abundance and safety and fruitfulness. They would recognize the idea of wine that would never run out, like he says of her navel. They would recognize the idea of a bumper wheat harvest, mounds of wheat lying around. It's wonderful. It's abundant. They would recognize the language of the richness of jewels. There's, there's wealth. And there's glorious, gleaming cities, the safety of watchtowers and walls. These are the most glorious things, the most precious things, especially to a man who's the king of this nation. And so he wants to attach all of that glory and splendor to her. He does it systematically. He starts at her feet in verse 1. And bit by bit, he moves up her body. And as he sees or imagines that body part, he wants to attach the glory and splendor of God's fulfilled promises, this beautiful land, to her. And actually, this part of the song um, is virtually the last thing the king says in the whole book. So we're not going to hear from the king except for one sentence next week. Um, he's just going to say a little bit next week. Um, this is the last thing we're going to really hear from the king. This is what he wants to leave her with. He wants to leave her with this picture of the land that he says is actually a picture of her. So that from now on, that's going to be her view of herself. She can view herself as someone with dignity, with honor, someone who's formed by God, 
beautifully crafted by God, blessed by God, and filled up by God. Now, later in the Bible, we're going to find that uh, we're told that romantic relationships like this one were actually given to us so that by immersing ourselves in understanding those, we would begin to understand how Jesus feels about the church. And so as the king says this to his bride, it's actually Jesus speaking to the church as well. So what's he saying to the church? He's saying to the church that systematically, from the youngest to the oldest, every one of you from your feet all the way up to your hair, I want you to think of your place before God as like a land that's full of honor and dignity and blessing. He wants you to think of yourself as being beautiful to him. Because in yourself, in your body, you display the goodness of God's fulfilled promises. He loves that. He delights in that. When Jesus looks at you, he sees what the faithful and abundant God has made you. He sees how God has poured blessing into you to make you something beautiful and fruitful. Now, you might not think that about yourself, maybe because we don't really celebrate it much. But every person, every human being in the world is masterfully created by God. It's God's imprint on them that makes them beautiful. And every believer, every Christian is redeemed expensively. For Jesus, you're precious. That goes for every one of you. Whatever your history, whatever your failings, in your body, you are a story of God's goodness and faithful restoration. That's what Jesus thinks of you. And his voice is the most important voice to shape how you think of yourself. This is who you are. You're like a land who's received God's promises. You've received God's promises. You've trusted in him. And as you've depended on him, he's forgiven you and restored you. This is who you are. And that makes you beautiful, full of dignity and splendor in Jesus' eyes. And as you hear these words, maybe this is how you can begin to see yourself too. But the king in the song doesn't simply praise his bride's beauty because he wants her to feel affirmed and secure. It becomes clear as we move into verses 6 to 9 that he benefits from her beauty too. Her dignity means his delight. Um, let's go back to, to Mother's Day. We spend Mother's Day grateful for our mothers and all the love that they've given to us, whether that's our birth mothers or foster mothers or adoptive mothers or our spiritual mothers in church. We are grateful for all that they've given to us, all the ways that they've loved us, all the ways that they've poured into us. And that's what we often think of love as, isn't it? Um, giving, the, the, the amount that they've given to us. As a parent, I want my children to know that they are loved. So I want to express that in terms of how much I will give them, how much I will give of myself to them. I would say to them, we, we are always by your side. We are always supporting you. We will always care for your needs. We will always be there for you. But as I reflect on that, I actually want my children as well to know how much we get from them. Now, that could sound selfish, but actually, don't you think it's dignifying and honoring to them to show that they've got much to give? To say, as a human being, you bring something to this. Actually, 
if you get a chance, if you're able to, if you're in this situation, to, to give thanks to your mother later on today for all that she's been to you, she may say to you, well, actually, it's been my pleasure. It's been something I've loved to do. And that actually is more affirming than anything, isn't it? As parents, we don't love our children because we have a duty to. It's part of their dignity that they bring something. It's not a bother for us to have them in our lives. We enjoy them as much as we love them. We don't love them just for their sake, but for our sake too. And that's not selfish. It dignifies them to say that we can enjoy them. And that really goes for romantic relationships too, doesn't it? Uh, a groom doesn't just love his bride because he wants to give to her as if she's nothing, <laughs> helpless. But he honors her by saying, what you have to bring to me is something wonderful too. You are, you're productive. You bring something that, that this world is better for. It gives them security and value to know that we don't care for them because we have to, but because we love to. It's part of our love to our spouses or our children, that we love them. And that's the next bit in the song. It might make you a bit uncomfortable if we were to read through exactly what's going on. He likens her body to a palm tree, her breasts to grapes, and he says, oh, well, I'm going to climb that, and I'm going to lay hold of that. Uh, he's talking about how he's going to find intimate pleasure in the body of his bride. Well, it's here in the Bible, just as an aside, um, because it's here in the Bible, it's worth noting that this is a marker of healthiness in a marriage relationship when the prospect of a night in together stirs your imagination. When you imagine intimacy with your spouse in terms of your highest pleasure and deepest joy, if you find your delight in that, what they are going to bring to you and what you can give to them, well, that's great. But if that's something you've lost in a marriage relationship, then and I'm sure all couples do that from time to time. Just a, a reminder that it's always healthy to make sure it doesn't get lost for too long, to rekindle that. But it's significant in this passage, the language that's used. The husband describes the deep moment of climactic intimacy and wild joy of sex. But he still uses the terms of the promised land. He talks about grapes on a vine. He talks about apples. He talks about this creating the best wine. Because not only does his bride have dignity in being like the promised land, but she is precious and honored because she produces something. What she produces, what she brings, the world is better for. She brings something. What she makes, what she can do, well, that is the deepest delight of the king. And it's expressed in no higher terms than the, the climactic moment of intimacy. And where this is a picture of Jesus and his people, this is Jesus saying to his church, his highest pleasure and his deepest joy is the fruit of what a church makes. Who you are is like a land crafted and planted and grown by God into a place of blessing and fruitfulness. Receive God's promises and provision. And that comes into bloom. And what Jesus loves to enjoy is what comes out of that. What thrills him most is when people who receive his promises, who trust in him, who rest in his goodness, then are productive themselves. When that makes the best wine that flows out to others. Let's take away the metaphor, put that into real language. Who you are 
is somebody chosen and loved and forgiven and redeemed by God. Who you are is crafted as someone who's got a unique personality, a unique background. You have unique gifts and opportunities. And by God's promised Holy Spirit, he is forming in your life daily you into a beautiful and life-giving and refreshing and fruitful person. That's your dignity. And Jesus' delight is when that bears fruit. It's when you step into that identity and you live like this abundant land. And the people around you will get that. When the people around you find themselves refreshed by your patience. As if you're passing on the, the fruitfulness that Jesus has given to you to, to those around you. The patience that's growing in your life or the forgiveness that you offer them or the encouragement that you bring to those around you. Like as if you are an overflowing spring or a goblet full of never-ending wine. Jesus loves it when the fruit of your relationship with him comes out as you knowing you're forgiven. And so from now on, you completely turn away from things you know you shouldn't do. He loves the fruit of this when you extend sacrificial love to those people around you, to people in society who don't have a voice. The fruit of this overflows in the best wine when you're found kneeling in prayer, depending on your father for the needs of a neighbor who's struggling. To Jesus, that kind of thing is like, it's like wine. It's like as if you've been planted and tended as a vineyard and forgiven and restored, and now you're growing and coming out of you is this, this godliness and Christ-likeness. This is who you are, and this is Jesus' most climactic delight. Deep and profound like physical union, but for Jesus, his thrill is the growth and the godliness, which is the pleasant fruit of his church. He says that, and the bride in the song, she gets that. And the rest of the passage is her response. As she happily, from verse, halfway through verse 9 onwards, she happily steps into that. She's comfortable now in her dignity. She knows the king's delight. And so from now on, she describes her uh, devotion. Uh, look at verse 10. Those two things, her dignity and his delight, are in verse 10. She says, I belong to my beloved and... His desire is for me. That is who she is and what he loves. That is her identity and his pleasure, her dignity and his delight. And perhaps for the first time in the whole song, those truths are finally taking hold and beginning to shape her life. Because for the first time in the song, she begins to speak now about what she will do for him. If you've been coming... Um, regularly to our church as we've been going through Song of Songs, it would be tricky to pick that up. She's often said her part, he's said his part, but this is actually quite unique. That She has never been able to say this before, but, but now she does. She speaks about what she is going to produce, what she is going to do for him. Because what, that's what happens. This is what happens when somebody is loved and admired so deeply and passionately, is that they are empowered. They're built up to become fruitful. They live out of that security and bear fruit. We saw last week, as Morris spoke, if you missed it, it's available online. He said that the husband who praises the strength of his wife empowers her. But the person who belittles the strength of women robs them. 
But this bride is stood here and she's admired and she is empowered. She can step into this identity and she's got a plan, verse 11, for, for her enjoyment and his. She's secure in her identity, in her dignity. She knows what he delights in and shows she's got this plan in verse 11 that they're going to head out to the vineyards. And there she says, I will give you my love. Now, for the couple in the song, I think that means what you think it means. But from here on in, she, she mentions five times how she will do something for him. She says uh, she will give her love. She says in verse 13, she's stored up delicacies for him. That's the, the fruit of her garden. She says in chapter 8, verse 1, she would kiss him. She says uh, later on that he, she would lead him and bring him. And then she says she would give him spiced wine. She's now pouring out to him. Secure and empowered now she is. She is prepared to make everything available to her husband. And on one level, I think that means physical marital intimacy. It's what's going on between this couple. It's a beautiful picture of unspoiled bliss. It's like going back to the Garden of Eden, naked and feel no shame in the garden. But on another level, it's that she is using all that she's become because of God's faithfulness to her in order to become a blessing to him. She steps into this identity. So verse 12, she imagines herself like she's been told she is. She imagines that she's a fruitful garden, vines and pomegranates, ready to share with her husband. Verse 13, she is stepping into that identity. She's believing what he said about her, and she is now saying that uh, she's aware of all these different ways that her fruitfulness is going to be a delight to him. And in chapter 8, verse 2, there's, there's more wine, more delight from the things that she's produced. She believes this about herself now, and she's going to do it. If this is who she is, and if this is what he loves, then it is her joy and excitement to get on and grow this garden. She's so keen, she even trips up on the inevitable tension, the kind of back to reality of what it's like, actually, to be uh, the king's bride. So interesting bits in chapter 8. She mentions in verse 1 that she's upset, that in practice, she can't quite give back to the king all that she's given to her. It's still a bit of a lopsided, unequally balanced relationship. I think she's feeling attention, that she echoes a little bit from chapter 2. There's a lot of language of, of chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, that is an echo of chapter 2. In chapter 2, she says that she wants him to lead her inside. In chapter 2, the very next verse, she says she needs strengthening. And then she says the very, first, the very same thing in chapter 2 as she says in verse 3 here, which is his left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Back then, she is in need of strengthening. Back then, she is in need of leading. And that's the right response to the protection and love of her royal husband. But she's come a long way. Chapter 8 She's been built up. Her strength is evident. He's given her that confidence and that identity to step, step into. Now she's secure, and she is uh, imagining herself as this flourishing, fruit-giving place. And so she's saying, well, I wish I could be the one to do that to you. I wish I could be the one to bless you. I wish I could be the one who finds you outside and kisses you. I wish I could be the one who leads you into the home, and I wish I could be the one who gives you this spiced wine and the nectar of the pomegranates. I find that a really relatable insight on her part. Um, as Christians, 
we say Jesus is this lover. He's our lover. He's our husband. But he is God and he's perfect. So what on earth can we do for him? If we feel this devotion towards Jesus, if you know he loves you, if this is your identity, then what can you do for him? We struggle to actually physically show him our love the way we ordinarily would. I sometimes imagine what I would do if Jesus walked in through the door, or maybe more accurately, as the Bible says it, what I would do when he returns. And, and as a good Bible-believing Christian, I know what I'd do. I would just bow. I'd get onto my knees. I'd bow. I'd worship, and I'd adore in joy and gladness. I'd adore right then on the, st- on the spot. Life, everything else would stop. I'd stop my sermon. That's less important. Sorry, guys. I'm going straight to Jesus. Of course I would. The only thing that would leave my lips would be praise and joyful adoration. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? I'd never leave his side. I'm thinking like the bride in the song. I'm thinking, if only you were actually like, you know, a brother to me. Like physically, here, touchable. Someone who, in her language, nursed to my mother's breasts like an actual guy right here, right next to me. I know what I'd do then. I know that I could show you my devotion. That's kind of obvious. But the insight of the song is what the life of the bride is, is to rest in his arms and grow the garden. That means trust in Jesus' promises. It's not, it's not, a, an, it's not an avenue open to her to be able to, like, to do all this physical adoration and bowing. No, but what he delights in is that you trust his promises and you grow more like him. That's what he loves. That's the devotion he loves. She wishes it could be more tangible, but this is the devotion he loves. Trust in his promises. Grow more like him. We've heard the king's voice for almost the last time in the Song of Songs here. We're only one week away from finishing, but I I think this is a really great place to have gotten throughout Song of Songs. We've been learning about Jesus' passionate love for us, and we've had to go through that quite a few times. We're slow on the uptake, but week by week, I hope you've seen again and again his happy and warm face welcoming you, broken and wayward though you are. We've heard how his words dignify us and strengthen us. He loves our struggle. He admires our strength. And today we get a vision of what that turns into. People who then step into their identity as loved by Jesus. We rest in his love, bask in his his joy. We believe his promises. And that empowers us to grow more and more like him. And that bears fruit. It impacts those around us. We spread blessing. And yes, we will wish, and it's right that we will wish, that it could just be more immediate and physical than that. But all the while, we've been learning to rest in the delight and safety of Jesus And let his love for us flower into Christ-like character in our lives. So today, step into that identity. That's the call. Stepping into that identity will shape what you think your, your life is about. It will shape your loves and your actions, like that nursery child. Hearing who you are and living that out will shape how you act. So today, hear what Jesus thinks of you. And step into your identity as a beautiful and fruitful promised land. And know his passionate pleasure as he delights in the fruits.